woman who enjoys garden parties. <laughs> if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to Titus chapter 2. We're continuing in our sermon series on our statement of faith. And the section that we're in today is called Life in Christ. That title reflects a fundamental reality about the Christian life, which is that a believer is in Jesus Christ. We are united to him in the way that a vine is connected to branches uh, from Jesus' illustration in John 15. Um, And so we're united to him by the Holy Spirit. That's the life that's flowing through us, God himself dwelling in us by the Spirit. So this section covers a lot of ground, but the part that we're going to focus on today is the day-by-day life in Christ, what we would call faithful Christian living. The question we're going to answer is, what does a faithful believer in Jesus do, and why does he or she do it? For that, we're turning to Titus 2, 11 to 14. And it'll appear on the screen if you don't have the word in front of you. We're going to read the whole chapter, 15 verses, uh, for the context. And I'll have some things to say about some of the other verses. But our focus is Titus 2, 11 to 14. So let's read God's word. Uh, Titus 2, beginning in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Let's pray. We have a whole load of instructions here, Lord. (laughs) They are for our good. And we pray that today we would see them with new eyes, fresh eyes, that we'd see them through the lens of the gospel. Because you are good to us and you want us to do good. 
and you empower us to do good. And so, Lord, would you refresh us today again with the reminder of all that we have in Jesus Christ and all the great, glorious, beautiful life that's laid out before us for the taking. And so we ask you, Lord, build up your church today by the Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this chapter starts out with a description of what the Christian life is to look like. And Paul describes it in verse 1 as what accords with sound doctrine. So if you thought that sound doctrine was just something for theologians and pastors and something interesting to talk about in a Bible study that has no connection to real life, well, let me set the record straight. (laughs) What accords with sound doctrine meaning what is consistent with the truth of the Bible, is the way of life that's described in verses 2 through 10. If you make a claim of being a Christian, if you are joined to Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God, then this is what is consistent with that confession. And what we have here is a list of character qualities and actions for people to pursue who are in all ages and stages of life and from both genders. So there's something here for all of us. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on all the details here, but let me just choose a few examples so we get a flavor of what life in Christ looks like. So verse 2 addresses older men. Okay, so this is my category. This is a couple of other guys out here. The older men, what should we be like? Older men are to be, among other things, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. I like that word sound. It means in good condition, not damaged. So like as an older guy, I want to be sound (laughs) as I age. And I know that ultimately I'm not going to be sound in my body. I am becoming more unsound every day. I can literally hurt myself if I get out of bed too fast. That didn't used to happen. (laughs) the outer man is decaying. But though our bodies are becoming unsound, there is one thing that can and should be sound. It should should not be damaged. It should be in good condition, which is our faith, our love, and our steadfastness. Older guys are to be a model for the younger generation about what it looks like to persevere to persevere to the end, trusting God and His promises. We have the perspective of time where we can look back and we can see God's hand and say to those following after, hang in there, God is faithful, which is what Pastor Dan did for us so beautifully last week, telling us how God brought him through the storm. He'll bring us through the storm. There's a man who's sound in faith. And love and steadfastness. That's what Titus is supposed to teach this church. That's what Paul is saying. That's what we can be. Guys are not to grow old and cynical and jaded and become grumpy old men who say, get off my lawn. You know, that's not where we want to end. (laughs) Our love can be sound. Verse 3 addresses older women and younger women. Older women, among other things, are to teach what is good. And so, train the young women to love their husbands and children. This is discipleship. This is older women who have walked with God through good times and bad times, passing on a gospel culture to the younger women and the next generation. 
Because Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And now Paul is saying to the older women, you pass on that same message of the Savior to the young women and that they can pass that on then to their children and to their husbands, to the people in their sphere of influence. Should God give you husbands and children? But even beyond that, there's, a, there's an ethic here. There's a gospel culture here to be transferred now through the older women who have walked with God and can say, hey, ladies, keep going. Go Jesus' way. That's a beautiful thing. And the young, younger women take up that baton, and then they raise up the little ones to, to have that same value. Verse 6 addresses younger men. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Self-control actually shows up three times in these verses. It's not just for younger men. It's also for older men, younger women. They're all told to pursue this quality. But when Paul thinks about teenagers, and he thinks about young men in, say, their 20s, if you had to pick one thing to say that they should focus on, self-control comes to his mind. Younger men have a particular need to exercise restraint, over their impulses, their, their emotions, their desires. There's a 70s song by Cat Stevens called Father and Son, which has been thankfully resurrected in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. <laughs> you know, so that the younger generation can now benefit from these lyrics. And it's about a father counseling his son about his impulsiveness. He says, I once was like you are now, and I know that it's not easy to be calm when you found something going on. But take your time, think a lot. Think of everything you've got, for you will still be here tomorrow, but your dreams may not. Paul says to Titus, tell the young men to exercise self-control. Take your time, think a lot. <laughs> and particularly, think about God's character, God's promises, and God's will, and then act with informed faith. And that's how self-control is nurtured. We could go on. There's a whole lot more in verses 2 through 10 about what life is to look like as a believer in Jesus. But let me make an observation here. At face value, much of what's in verses 2 through 10 could be done at some level by a person who is not a believer in Jesus. Anyone could exercise self-control. Many wives love their husbands and their children, and not old guys or grumpy old men. But there's a reality that gives a particular motivation and substance to all of this that Paul is describing, and that is in verses 11 to 14. It's something that makes this distinctly Christian in nature. There's a reality behind all this. And what is that reality? It's the grace of God. Having listed the character qualities and the actions that accord with sound doctrine, Paul reminds us in verse 11 what the sound doctrine is that they're consistent with. He tells the older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, and all the others to pursue this kind of life for the grace of God has appeared. That's the underlying reality behind all of this. The doctrine of the grace of God believed and enjoyed in our hearts is what will lead a believer 
in Jesus to exercise self-control, to love others, to be steadfast in trials and everything else. It's what makes it a distinctly Christian way of life because it's ultimately about conforming our lives to the life of Jesus Christ. So let's see how Paul leads us through this. It begins with this observation. First of all, grace has appeared. That's the first thing out of the gate. Grace has appeared. Why be sound in faith, love, and faith and steadfastness? Why teach what is good and love husbands and children? Why be self-controlled and so many other things? Here's why. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Let's think about that. What is the grace of God? Well, grace is a disposition of God toward fallen sinful people like us, which He generously forgives all our wrongdoing and moves toward us with blessing rather than with judgment. Or as the late Jerry Bridges summarized it, grace is God's favor to sinners who deserve only wrath. He used an illustration about what his mom used to do for homeless guys. So homeless people would show up at her doorstep and they'd want food. And she was always generous. She was always giving these guys food. No questions asked. No, no, nothing you need to do. I'll just give it to you. And he says, that's compassion. But grace is more than that. Grace is when the homeless person that shows up at your, at your door looking for food stole your car last night. And you still give the food to him. Because grace is giving, what, giving something to somebody who doesn't deserve it. It's compassion towards somebody who actually deserves judgment. We don't deserve God's grace because we sin against God all the time. We have our own version of stealing God's car, you might say. Things that we've done against Him. He has commands about how we're to live. Then we break those commands continually. One of them is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we don't do that for even one hour. But he's worthy of that kind of devotion as our creator. The grace of God is an amazing thing. It's not payment. It is God doing something good for us, because, not because we did the right things, because we didn't. It's God freely giving to us despite the fact that we have done all the wrong things. Grace takes a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent like Paul and turns him into a new creation and gives him an eternal life. <laughs> and Paul rejoiced in that. He says, man, I can't believe I'm here. Look who I was. And look what I have. Wow. <clears throat> Grace brings salvation. Grace forgives. Grace clears our bad record. Grace overflows for us in a rescue from the power and the penalty of sin. It brings us into peace with God. It promises us eternal life. Isn't that an amazing thing? Grace brings salvation for all people. Paul says, this is available to anyone. This is available to you. This is available to me. But that's not the whole story, is it? Because if we left it there, we might think the grace of God is like an enormous stimulus check that you get just for being alive. 
and a taxpayer. <laughs> and it just comes. I don't have to do anything. It just comes to me and everybody gets it. We might think grace is like that, but that's not true. There's more to the picture. Paul says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. How has it appeared? It has appeared in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God can only pardon us and welcome us to Himself because of verses 13 and 14. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave Himself for us to redeem us. That's how grace flows to us. Sin requires justice from God. And justice was carried out on Jesus, who took the blame and the punishment on Himself for our wrongdoing. His sacrifice fully paid our debt. God's grace comes to us through Jesus and His atonement. And as the other scriptures testify, we receive it only through faith in Jesus Christ as our great God and Savior. By grace you have been saved through faith. That's the good news of Christianity. That despite ourselves, salvation is available for all People, for everyone who's broken, to be received by faith. Anybody can get in on this. Grace has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the invitation in everybody's mailbox to be received and welcomed and responded to in faith. So respond to that invitation with a yes in your heart to Jesus, if you haven't already. Now, what does any of this has to do with the instructions on verses 12, 2 through 10? <laughs> How does this have anything to do with the life that we're to live? Here's the connection. Faithful Christian living is a response to God's grace, not the cause of it. It's a response to God's grace, not the cause of it. There's a way to live out of it. You don't live to get it. Titus, teach them to do these things for the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation. The grace brings the salvation, not living in these certain ways. Believers are already in a grace relationship with God, and so teach them the manner of life that's consistent with that privileged position. Here's a common problem that many of us have naturally, some more than others. I tend this way. We naturally think that doing the right things makes us right with God. Be a good person and God will be good with you. But the opposite is true. Being right with God is what leads us to do the right things. Grace precedes obedience. Grace makes obedience attractive. Grace makes obedience possible. So true obedience flows out of being amazed at God's grace to undeserving me and you or else it turns into something ugly if we don't believe that. What can happen is that we measure our sense of being okay by how well we think we're doing in obedience. You know, we read Titus 2, 2 through 10, and we go, yeah, I'm pretty close to that, so I feel good. And you read it another day, and you're like, yeah, I'm nowhere near that. I feel really, really bad. And there's a, there's a degree that we should feel bad about our sin, but if that makes you think, okay, I'm not right with God anymore... That's not where it's supposed to take you because you are right with God through faith, through a Savior who atoned for your sins and who performed well for you. 
That's where our heart has to run when we're starting to feel like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. No, God is, all, God is going to take care of us. God has reached out. God, has, God is the Savior. Friends, it's a dead-end way to live, to just put pressure on yourself, your kids, your husband, your peers, your wife, whatever, and think, okay, you've got to be right in order for God to be pleased with you. Actually, he's pleased with you through Jesus Christ. Yes, we can please him by our obedience. We're going to get to that. But if he's not already pleased with you through Christ, you can't even obey because you won't be doing it for the right motives. Grace of God takes our obedience out of the equation for his acceptance. He is satisfied with Christ. The Christian life that Titus was to teach has to flow out of our belief and our enjoyment of the grace of God. And that is exactly what will happen if you really understand the grace of God. You will pursue this kind of life. And that leads to the second point, which is that grace trains us. Grace trains us. Verse 12, for the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So think of the grace of God as a coach, as a personal trainer, whose goal is not to tone your muscles or make you a better athlete, but to train you in a way of life, to shape you in all the ways of verses 2 through 10 and more. And Coach Grace has two goals. He has two outcomes that he wants to produce in your life. Negatively, he wants you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And he, positively, he trains you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. This is what the coach is doing. These are his two methods of training you. This is the, these are his goals. This is where he wants you to be. Let's look at each of those in turn. First, the negative training, the things he wants you to give up. The grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. A personal trainer in a gym might tell his clients to cut out their daily consumption of donuts and Mountain Dew. If you want to be fit, you're going to have to give up some stuff right? A good coach is going to do that. Well, grace trains us to give up something also. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you just call out what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with everybody else and say, isn't this a terrible thing? Uh, isn't our culture just a terrible, terrible place? And aren't my neighbors terrible? And you're just, you're just always renouncing. I'm renouncing ungodliness all around me. No. You renounce your own sin. You abandon and turn away from it in your own life. There's an interesting exchange about this in the Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Faithful and talkative are walking down the road, and faithful is asking talkative questions. And as his name implies, talkative is just a guy who likes to talk. And after a while, faithful gets to realize this guy's all talk and no substance, and he's, he's questioning whether his faith is real, because he likes to talk about spiritual things. So, he's, so he, he formulates a question, and he asks talkative. How does the saving grace of God make itself known when it is in the heart of man? 
In other words, if a person is genuinely saved by the grace of God, how should that change them? Talkative replies, where the grace of God is at work in the heart, it causes there to be a great outcry against sin. To which faithful replies, wait a minute, you should have said, it makes itself known by inclining the soul to abhor its sin. I have seen many cry out against sin in the pulpit who yet abide it well enough in their own heart, home, and manner of life. See, the grace of God makes you renounce the ungodliness in your own life first and foremost. It makes you more concerned about your own sin than somebody else's sin. It makes us take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of somebody else's, to quote Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. One of the criticisms of Christians, and it is sometimes deserved, is that we act as if we are the holy ones and the problem is everybody else. That we're quick to point out all the sins of our culture and go on record that we condemn and renounce such things, and yet we don't look internally and see the ungodliness that's right here. There is ungodliness all around us to be sure, and God is not unconcerned with that, and God is going to deal with that. And we are to be in this world as salt and light, to be an influence for good and to change what we can. But if we understand grace, the first, point, first place we point the finger is at ourselves because we know that God has been merciful to me, a sinner, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The grace of God trains us to put away sin from our lives, or as the NIV puts it, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We don't want that in our lives anymore. We, not just because being loveless leads to arguments, not just because lack of self-control can lead to wasting all your money or ending up in the ER with alcohol poisoning, but because sin is disobedience to God, and why would I do that when He's been so merciful to me? Grace trains us negative to, negatively to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but here's how it trains us positively. There's things that the Lord wants us to adopt and put on. The grace of God is training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is a pursuit of godliness. This is what we might call a Godward life. We're taking on God's priorities, God's purposes for our lives. A football coach is trying to get a young man to be the best wide receiver he can be. So his end goal is, I want this guy to be able to catch anything that's thrown within five yards of him so that we can win games. Well, what, what are God's purposes experientially in the day-to-day -day life, what He wants to shape in us is to make us like Jesus for the glory of His name. Romans 8.29, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's where He wants to take us. In order that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And what did Jesus do on earth? What does it look like to be in his image day by day? What does our life look like if it's being shaped, conformed to the image of the, the Son of God? Well, he was self-controlled. He was guided by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God to do the will of God in all things. 
He, was a, he lived an upright life. Other translations say living righteously, giving attention to what's fundamentally good in the sight of God. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne from Psalm 89. It's about doing good works. It's about caring for people. It's about being faithful with responsibilities and so much more. That's an upright life. Jesus lived a godly life. He said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. (laughs) I always do the things that are pleasing. That's a statement of sinlessness, by the way. Because everything that we do must be pleasing to Him, or else it's sin. And Jesus says, I always do what's pleasing to Him. He's sinless. He lived before the face of God. His heart was to bring God honor. He delighted to do His will. He didn't have a career that He would add God into once in a while. He didn't have all these life goals, and like, oh, and yeah, oh, and yeah, i got to go to church, or you know, also I should read my Bible. That wasn't his heart at all. He's like, I live for the Father. He said, I glorified you on earth in his high priestly prayer in John 17. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I was here doing your work. That was my life. Grace trains us to live this way. Guilt and pressure to perform will not train you to live that way. Be like this or else will not train you to live this way. But God's favor to sinners who deserve only wrath will. If we delight in God who forgives us freely through Christ, we will live a certain kind of a way. Practically, it means you read verses 2 through 10 and every other command in the Bible and you say, yeah, I want to do that. That's what I want my life to be like because Christ freed me from sin to live to the glory of God. So I want to be sound in faith and love and steadfastness. I want to teach what is good and love my spouse and my kids. I want to be self-controlled in everything else that the Lord wants for me, not as a duty, but because it's a privilege to live this way as worship to Him. And it's the best way for me to live. This is a beautiful life, just as Christ's life was and is beautiful. Before leaving this point, one more thing needs to be said. This blows up the idea that living by grace somehow means holiness doesn't matter. That obedience doesn't matter. That only uptight, legalistic Christians are concerned about removing sin from their lives and living in a godly way. Some have taken it that way. They say, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. And that leads to sort of a lax, worldly way of life that doesn't look at all that much different from somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus. Well, actually, if you're apathetic towards sin, if you're not striving for holiness and godliness, that's a sign that you don't really understand grace. Because if you did, you would renounce ungodliness. You would live godly lives. If that's not happening in us, something has gone wrong in the training. It means that either you're not a genuine Christian or God's grace to you hasn't really clicked deeply in your heart. Because grace embracing genuine believers will put away sin and strive to live a godly life. A grace-saturated gospel culture is not a place where we condone sin, 
but where we help each other be liberated from its presence and serve the Lord with humility and joy. It doesn't produce James 2 type people who say, I have faith but no works. It doesn't produce Ecclesiastes type people who want to see what the world has to offer and test ourselves with pleasures. Rather, it produces people who take up their cross and follow Jesus to please the Father even when it involves personal suffering. Genuine appreciation for grace overflows with glad obedience to His will. But that said, we'll be honest and we will admit that we never live up to the ideal. Even when you're growing in grace, even when you're renouncing ungodliness, you're pursuing a godly life, you're going to be aware that you fall short. We all do. And that can be discouraging, but it need not crush our spirit because of the last thing that Paul has to say, which is that grace will prevail. Grace will prevail in your life. Verses 13 and 14 tell us that we, the recipients of God's grace, are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's a promise that the grace of God will ultimately accomplish the goal of the training. Grace will prevail and we will become all that God intends for us to be when Jesus appears again. We know that the grace of God has appeared in the past in the person of Jesus who gave himself on the cross. And we know the grace of God is also with us in the present, training us to renounce ungodliness and live a certain way. But that's never complete in this life. All of that is just temporary. It's always fallen. There's always something wrong with it in this present age. But the day is coming when all the sin will be removed and the godliness will be complete. (laughs) The ultimate goal for God for believers is verse 14. It's to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Already that has begun. Already grace is training us to do that right now. We are putting things off. We are taking things on. But when Christ returns, the training will be over. What the training was for will be completed. We will be fully redeemed from all lawlessness. Not just the lawlessness of this world, though that's true, but from our own lawlessness. We will be purified with no sin remaining in our heart or lives. We will be zealous for good works completely, never zealous for anything else except that which brings glory to God and good to one another. That's a picture of eternal life that we might not have thought of. Eternal life is living in a world where everyone that you ever meet is zealous for good works who is zealous to do you good. (laughs) Would you like to live in a world like that? (laughs) I mean, nobody that you ever encounter will ever have anything bad to say about you, think about you, do to you. It's always, I love you. What can I do to serve you? How can I make, you know, the day better, whatever. I don't know how the day in heaven can get better. But like, there's that attitude, right? 
I mean, that's everybody. Everyone you meet is out for your good. Out for your good. What a world that God has planned for His people. The saving work of God's grace in us will reach completion when Jesus returns. As John said in his first letter, when he appears, he will, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall be changed. <laughs> yes, that means a resurrection body. Yes, that means free from sin in a fallen world. But I think the accent here in Titus 2 is not on those things as much as it is on the change that happens in us. We will sin no more. We will be godly, always doing what pleases the Father. I think of all the pictures of heaven in the Bible, and there's great pictures there. I think as we grow more and more in our appreciation of God's grace, none will be dearer to us than the fact that we will never sin against the Lord again. (laughs) We will never do what required Him to die on the cross in order to save us. That's a beautiful thing. Everything about heaven is something of a mystery, but I can't begin to imagine what it would be like to never sin again, but that will be our condition. Never a thought that's impure. Never a half-hearted good, good work. Never a bad attitude. Never an unkind word. No foolish decisions. No sinful judgments of other people. No impatience. No selfishness. No laziness. No pride. Only purity purified for Jesus like a bride, which is the language Paul uses in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy And without blemish. That's Jesus purifying a people for his own possession. That's a description of you and me as believers in Christ. In our status, we are already there. God counts us as holy and without blemish. But one day, when we see him in glory, it will be our experience. Individually and as a people, all the redeemed will be presented to Christ in splendor, completely holy. The grace of God will prevail in our lives. So let me close with this. Be grieved over your sin and seek to live a holy life. But when the reality falls short of the ideal, remember this. God is a Savior, not just a trainer. And he will save us thoroughly. (laughs) No spot or wrinkle. We will get there. And we will be made amazing (laughs) without all that sin that we deal with now. And he welcomes us as a bride. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing in your life right now, believer. He's bringing you there. He's bringing you to the wedding day. Rest in grace. And let that compel you to live a faithful Christian life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are so merciful to us that you should have such goals and plans and purposes for us. 
But we live in sort of a dark world where all this is veiled to us and we're distracted. Would you give us eyes to see your grace and enjoy it and understand it rightly so that it produces in us this life of worship, this growing, bringing heaven to today, bringing the, the beauty of that moment into this moment, one day at a time. Lord, help us to be this people. And we thank you that you are. But let it be motivated by grace. Help us to see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.